The Production Expert Podcast is brought to you with the kind support of Autoria, Source Elements, and RSPE Audio Solutions. Welcome to the Production Expert Podcast. I'm Mike Thornton, and in this week's edition, we're going to discuss the role of music editor. Now, you might have seen the job title music editor on a credit roll and wondered what a music editor does, and perhaps wondered why we need music editors. After all, a composer is writing to picture and hopefully hitting all the hit points, so surely it's just a matter of lining up their tracks. They shouldn't need any editing if the composer's done their job properly. Anyway, to help us understand this and much more, in this week's Production Expert podcast, we're joined by two music editors, Paul Applegren and Nathaniel Reichman. Paul is a music editor and composer from Los Angeles in California. After graduation from USC in 2004, he joined a music editing company that was doing all the work for Michael Giacchino's projects. Since then, Paul has worked his way up to be one of Giacchino's main music editors. He's worked on many projects, both large and small, for both film and television, and most recently, The Batman, which is due to be released on March the 4th, 2022. He's recently been expanding into composing work, and a recent indie feature he scored called Acid Test premiered in October at the Austin Film Festival. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Glad to be here. Nathaniel is a New York-based Grammy-nominated producer and mixer who has worked in television, film, advertising, and classical music. He has edited and produced scores for albums from Philip Glass, John Luther Adams, and Michael Gordon. Currently, he is the lead music producer stroke editor at Rumba, which is a dubway company specializing in children's media. He has worked on many television properties, including Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles and Bubble Guppies. Nathaniel is a graduate of Bennington College and an alumnus of the art school Fabrica in Italy. Welcome, Nathaniel. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for hosting, Mike. Not at all. So let's start with that $6 million question about music editing, because it refers to to many but related professions. So help us please both of you to to help us understand and describe what you do and why we need, well, let's just start with what you do and how is that different to what other music editors, including in the sort of print and publishing sector might do. Who wants to go first? Um, I'll take it, but I want Paul to correct me after I take it. So, <laughs> um, so in in straight music publishing, and I had a str- I had a short stint working for Boozy and Hawks. A music editor is working, you know, with the actual scores that a composer might be writing. So you're 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 really you're a notation expert. You're working with music copyists and things like that. Um, in television and film, uh, the music editor role is more specifically. I always think of it as the grand central station for music before it goes to the stage. Because a lot of scores for TV and film involve a lot of different people, and somebody has to be the um, the central train station for all of that media, and has to interact with the re-recording mixer and say, "Okay, how would you like your music, sir or madam? Here it is." Uh, so that's one role of a music editor, and then there's also a kind of more traditional role of a music editor who is um, kind of the full-time professional assistant to a busy composer. 
um, and may have a whole variety of tasks uh, for that composer that might include might include scores and and you know librarian and and all the other things. So there's a there's a broad range of things. Oh, and then there's a third category actually, which is the music editor often works for a director to create a temp score, and um, all of those jobs uh, are can either come from the production company and a director, or they can come from uh, a composer or a producer, depending on who's kind of running the show. But I'd love to hear what, what Paul's perspective is on this. Uh, sure. Um, well, the, you, you've hit it all. I mean, it, then you can get into the, the weeds about what a temp score actually is. And Well, yeah, I, uh, I was just going to clarify for, for those that perhaps don't. So a temp score, correct me if I'm wrong, but a temp score is essentially music that's laid in the timeline, probably other people's music, sort of to get a sense of what the sort of style is, and therefore, obviously, to fit, it's probably going to need cutting up quite a bit to sort of get it to vaguely fit in uh, in that particular project. Would that be right? Yep. Y- yes, that's uh, that's correct. <laughs> I love that. Uh, no uh, and yes. Yes. Uh, um, wait. Uh, uh, wait. Someone said no. Um, um, uh, we, we both agreed. Yes, we both agreed. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's fine. Uh, yes. Um, and uh, I've generally been involved with a project, you know, a number of projects from beginning to end. Um, so, you know, your tats do change. I start as the temp music editor. Um, and, you know, a lot of times I'll just get a a reel without anything in it, except for the dialogue. And maybe not even, it'll just be rudimentary effects at that point. And with some of these high budget movies, you know, you have a- animatics that, you know, before they have the computer generated effects. Um, and so a lot of times you... All you have is the dialogue and the music to help tell the story. And so the music becomes a really important part of the proof of concept for a big budget movie. Um, no one in the public is ever going to hear the temp score. But if you temp it wrong, the director can get... I mean, there there have been... I haven't worked on any project like that, but there have been stories about directors insisting they don't show the, the film with any music at all when they show their director's cut. And then they get fired <laughs> because the movie doesn't, the movie doesn't work. Um, uh, unless you're yeah. Michael Haneke, you know, in Europe, uh, who doesn't score his movies at all. Um, you know, you need, you need a, a score and the bigger the budget, the more, um, a score kind of does the heavy lifting in terms of helping tell a story or to give a scene energy or, you know, I don't know, fill in the blank. And then after the temp score is done, and everyone gets what's called tempitis. I'm sh- I don't know if anyone's <laughs> heard this term before, but they, it's the composer's bane because for some reason it only works that way. <laughs> Once you've done it that way, that's the only way it can be from, from then on. And so the, the composer is often chasing ideas that he can't abs- ac- actually replicate completely because you'll get into copyright infringement. Um, and that's sure. happened yeah. a number of times too. Um, so the production, so the so the director, etc., fall in love with the temp score, or get so used to it that anything else doesn't feel right anymore. Exactly, and like I've only I've only worked with one director who dealt with tempitis in a really creative and um, uh, uh, you know productive way when he was like, uh, I haven't I have notes for this cue, but I think it's because I'm used to the old one. So let's just let it sit there for a minute so I can get used to it. And then his notes go away. You that's know? great. But, yeah. but there's only one. That's one director out of, uh, you know, 
however many that I've worked with. <laughs> um, otherwise, you're always chasing this new thing instead of trying to create new magic. Thankfully, I worked with one of the a, a great composer who's really good at coming up with his own ideas, and he has a really good track record for talking people into his, you know, his way of doing things. So, um, uh, but then you know, once the temp you know, that at a certain point, my hat changes uh, into being the bridge between the composer and the director. I can tell the, um, you know, the composer, the history of every decision, if I've been involved from the beginning, that's why they like to have me involved from the very beginning. Um, and I kind of help walk him through or her through, um, you know, where, where the score, you know, where the score choices came from. And then the best part is the scoring itself. Uh, you have a number of review sessions with the director, hopefully, um, and then you record, which is the best thing in the world. Um, that's my favorite part. I don't know about Nathaniel, but um, it's because he's he's he records some pretty amazing things. So, uh, uh, what do you think, Nathaniel? Is that your favorite part of your job, recording the live music? Uh, my my favorite part is is zipping the Pro Tools session that is going to the stage, and uh, and sending a link over Aspera saying it's done. That's my favorite part. So, jeez, oh, <laughs> how pragmatic! <laughs> but no, no, I, I, I completely. I mean, there are there are so many. There are sections of it. There, there are parts of the workflow which I find sometimes miserable, and I, I ask myself, why am I still working on this television series? You know. Um, oh yeah, uh, yes, yes. But there are there are other parts of it that are that are incredibly satisfying. Um, uh-huh. And um, um, yeah, and then and just to put um, my. I think you know, Paul. I think that is in- for this for this pod. This is interesting because Paul and I are coming at it from a couple different angles. I I came into um, I came into music editing actually from advertising. I was working on uh, advertising music in New York, and then we sort of got m- offered more and more to work on television. And New York has a slightly different culture than LA does in terms of its productions. So we were kind of you know reinventing the wheel for ourselves in a number of ways. Um. And I think one of my one of my earliest um, uh, music editing jobs, I was working for a very successful composer who was busy, you know, constantly busy because we were working on multiple projects. And the best way to um, the best way to interact uh, with him and to keep things flowing was to have sort of a dedicated Pro Tools rig in his studio, which was kind of the um, the, the master session for all the cues because we'd be using Logic or Nuendo and flipping between cues very frequently. And so I was in charge of, of receiving every cue, mixing every cue, and then taking all the assembled cues to picture and taking them to the recording, you know, taking them to the stage for the final mix and sort of being the, at that point, sort of the music supervisor to see that everything was going, you know, going appropriately at the mix because he was too busy to be there. Um, and then it wasn't a, um, it wasn't a career decision that I, I made. It's something that absolutely fell into my lap. Uh, this is years ago. But um, I happened to work on a on a on a huge um, children's television show. Um, it turned into a big hit, and everybody who kind of worked on that show subsequently went on to work on many other children's television shows. And you know, when I was in college, it was never my it was never my goal to become uh, to make it in children's TV. But um, I look back on that um, period of time. We were given so much more artistic freedom. Uh, working in children's media than we were working on kind of, um, you know, hour-long dramas or sitcoms, kind of adult television, you know, mainstream adult, you know, primetime television, that when I look back at that switch, when we started doing children's media, it was actually very liberating 
you know, we, we would we would do something. I think my memory of it was that um, stylistically, the television projects that we were doing for for really primetime audiences or mainstream streaming shows, you're stuck in a very conservative, narrow band of kind of what is expected of you. And as soon as we switched to children's media, it was like, we want wilder. Can you go crazier? Can you do something, you know, kind of more insane? And so that was that was a great, that was a great moment. And our workflows changed too, because suddenly instead of working on, you know, uh, one show, we were working on often a couple episodes every week. And so that we had, you know, an army of people working on these shows and we had to work very, very quickly. Um, Paul was talking about doing a temp score. And uh, one of the things that we developed in-house at Rumba is um, because we're often using our own music to temp something, and often we'll temp something internally at the company. We have a we have a term I made up years ago. We call it the disaster edit, where I'll get a new episode of a television show, and I have a big library of all of our our proprietary original music cues, and I'll start throwing them at the screen really fast to find out kind of what works and what sticks and what doesn't and how it feels, and then I do that for maybe literally two, three, four hours, and I stop share it with everybody. And uh, the, the, the term disaster came in because it really is a disaster. But it, it's a creative way for us to start thinking about um, what we need to do as a team. So presumably, you know? it, it, at the very least, it says, this is not, we don't want it to look like or sound like that. You know, it's a, right. it rules things out at the very least. Yeah, exactly. It, rule, it rules things out. It says, we're not going this way. This will work. We've done this in the past. We've, we've stylistically done something similar to this in the past. So I need these two composers to work on these cues, and I need this composer to work on that cue. You know, um, <clears throat> I, I imagine uh, with the the films that Paul's working on that he has, um, you know, longer schedules and a little bit more focus. I feel like in television we're always working kind of at hundred miles an hour. You know, trying to get to the next episode. <laughs> so. De definitely, yeah. T television is like. You know, the races, it's, um, but you know, and, and usually in film, you do have a longer time. Although I, I have to say, I was up late last night doing something um, that they needed now, 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 now. So sometimes you get into those modes on film as well. But that's one yeah. of my, I worked on Fringe for five, all five years of its run. And that show is epic in its um, post-production. <laughs> um, and uh, so I cut my teeth on that, and I'm I, I, because I did. I'm 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 able to do things pretty quickly in the film side. Um, um, just going back to the temp again. It's sometimes with these bigger movies on this and the Batman. One thing that we did is Michael Giacchino wrote a number of suites before they even started shooting, um, and we recorded them. Right before the pandemic, um, in you know twenty twenty at the beginning of twenty twenty, so that um, they could go into, you know, shooting with them as a kind of inspiration, and then the benefit of that is I could it adds to my temp arsenal, so I can actually temp with the Batman score for once, um, right. and they can have tempitis with the score that's actually their movie. <laughs> um, that's how the Wachowskis like to work too. Um, they learned their, that trick from Tom Tickfer when they started working on Cloud Atlas together, because um, Tom Tickfer writes all his own music and records it before he even goes on to shoot. And they like that because they like be having tempitis with the music they know they can use. Um, uh, <laughs> I remember Lily once said, "It's like you know, if you use you know temp, temp that's not your score, it's like wearing someone else's clothes." 
you know, it's like, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> doesn't work completely. When, when we get asked to send a cue um, to the picture department or the animation department ahead of time, it's a huge relief for us because there are all these things that have to do with tempo and cutting that are going to be um, much easier when it comes back to us to actually do, you know, fill it out and do all this scoring. Um, I cannot tell you the number of phone conversations we've had with people where I just beg them, just use a click track. Please, <laughs> as long as you've got a click running, it's going to help us. You're going to save so much time and money in post if you if you just have some time going. And then when you open up that conversation, and then they start to think, well, maybe it'd be useful to have some music early on in the process, early on in the picture process. Um, that that can help everybody. And it, I always think of it as a luxury because we've never learned our lesson, you know. Uh, so yeah. when we do get that opportunity, it's great. But oh, well, it, it is more yeah. expensive to do it that way because a lot it of is, times. Yeah. A lot, a lot of times those score cues haven't been tested. So, so you can have a large swath of sweet just end up on the cutting room floor. Um, but, you know, it is uh, creatively, it's more, it's better, I think, you know, just to kind of get people, because mock-ups, some people do better mock-ups than others. Giacchino's mock-ups are not great. And so he really, people are really taking his word for how the thing is going to sound at the end. Achoria has a wide selection of software effects, including three compressors, three filters, three preamps, and three delays you'll actually use. The latest release, three delays you'll actually use, includes Delay Tape 201, Delay Memory Brigade, and the unique and experimental Delay Eternity. A bundle of selected effects called the AudioFuse Creative Suite is included with all AudioFuse audio interfaces. Visit Achoria.com to find out more on the effects you'll actually use. We've talked about a lot of the temping. The thing that, the thing that comes in at the end of a project, um, or not the end, but um, once the score has been recorded, you know, uh, Mike, going back to your question of, you know, well, if the composer did his job, why does a music editor even need to be there? Yeah. Well, here, I mean, we, 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 just to give you an example... We've finished all the scoring for the Batman. We're done. There's no more schedule, scoring scheduled, right? But they're just now going back and doing a trim pass on <laughs> the beginning of the movie, right? So no, all, no picture lock. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, picture, pi yeah, picture lock. If, there, picture if there's a picture what? lock, it'll happen like, I don't know. I, I'm not sure when it's scheduled or like, I've never worked on a project that has picture lock. I don't know what this means. It was, it was something taught to us in film school that was <laughs> to make us have a deadline because in the industry, there's no such thing. I mean, I've, I've worked on shows where we've been print mastering and they've changed picture. So then you have to stop the print master and, and then, and reset up the dub, <laughs> redo it, and then go back into print master mode. Um, uh, so a music editor becomes very important for that part because um, you're, you know, the music is still expected to play musically. It's still, you know, like it needs, and if we do our job correctly, you won't know, you know, like you won't, if, if it's, it's a bad edit that you notice and then you're like, you know, why did they do it that way? Um, but uh, uh, so we're chasing that <laughs> ephemeral lock uh, till the very end. And on top of that, we're, you know, we're getting into moments where what we recorded isn't, you know, doesn't work exactly how it was hoped. So then it's on, yeah. is it on, you know, in my, in my line of work, in, in, in our process, I'm the guy that they go to. They don't go to Giacchino anymore once we've recorded. I have to, yeah, I yeah. have to make a new cue from all of the stuff that we've recorded and, um, 
you know, I, I, I'm, I'm known to get quite creative, which is why they like working with me. <laughs> um, you know, um, I, one, one mixer called me a recomposer once, but it's, it's more kind of like a, like a glorified mashup artist, you know, like, like you, yeah, you yeah. start, <laughs> you, you start, um, you know, you start doing crazy things that end up in the final and no one will ever have known what battle you had to do or, you know, or, or you know, how much strife from a worried director, oh, this isn't working anymore. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Uh, and then you, f- you, you know, but eventually you figure out a solution. Um, um, I, I do often feel like that's really truly where I'm earning my keep as a, as a music editor when I've got a scene that for which the music is not working or it was recorded or the scenes changed or for whatever reason and creatively work out, musically work out how to reshape this to, to fit the picture properly, right? And that's a big, and I, you know, I took for granted when I left school, I, I, I took for granted what um, kind of musical knowledge I had when it came to reading scores. I'm not a great instrumentalist, but, you know, in terms of like understanding music, reading scores, understanding meter, you know, harmonic progression, all that stuff, every single day, you got to bring all of that to work um, in order to make a compelling score. And I think actually, in a way, in television, we even have um, a larger expectation than in film because um, um, at the beginning of uh, sorry, Paul, I interrupted you. This is a long interruption. I'll get back to you. <laughs> no, no, no problem. We're having a conversation. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things in, in TV that we've done, and not every TV project is like this. Some of the higher budget TV projects, you know, everything's written all the way through all the time. But some 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 television projects will spend a lot of money and time scoring every minute for the first five, six, seven episodes. And then as you progress throughout a 26 episode season, you start turning down the number of original minutes. You start saying, you know what? We've done a cue like this before. We're gonna adapt what we've already, you know, composed and recorded from episode three. So we can use a little bit of an episode 10. So you kind of, that needle between fully original and, and edited starts to starts to move from the, you know, hard right to the left as you go throughout the, throughout the season so my job you know starts out much easier and then gets much much harder because i've got whole you know sections of you know minutes at a time where i have to go in there and say okay i'm going to use our proprietary library of all the cues that we've developed all the splits that we have for those cues and try to figure out how to pace it and, and make what sounds like um custom composed music for that scene you know uh the most actually you know what I'll, I, paul asked me earlier what's the most satisfying um moment for me my most satisfying moment is when um, and this sounds a little ironic uh, and funny when our composing team gets a compliment from the director on how well scored a scene was and it was a scene that I edited from start to finish that's that's when I, that's when <laughs> yeah. I feel like okay great I'm really doing it so yeah 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 because they can't tell it was edited they they just assume that it fits really well and that was the way it was composed yeah yeah right and and the thing is like um and this is actually something i want to get into later in this this podcast on the sort of technical side of it and this is even where i have questions for you and 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 mike as well um you know we're developing these large proprietary libraries for these television shows and as if a show is successful and it goes to subsequent seasons these libraries um, become hard to manage, become technically hard to manage. And I'm always, always looking for better ways to kind of, um, uh, you know, make maximize what we already have there, right? To use it for the best way. Because there's been so much money spent already on these, these music cues. Why not, you know, use them to their maximum potential? And also, unlike film and TV, um, you actually want to hear um, 
you know, everyone's looking forward to hearing that theme again because that was a theme that was so exciting in episode 10. You know, you want to come mm. back to that in episode 20. You know, so it's that kind of that kind of creative reuse, which is really, I think, is probably more than half of my job, really. Um, so in terms of what sort of challenges does your job present you with? I mean, we've talked about a few that the need to uh, to get uh, to save money, if you like, with uh, by not having to write and record as many cues. But um, what what are the challenges? And I suppose the other half of this is what or who would make your life easier? Um, so yeah, the challenges. Um, Nathaniel, should we start with you? Sure, and you know, I'm, I'm because this is because um, we have a very technical audience. Uh, I hope you'll excuse me for diving into the technical weeds a little bit. But uh, yeah, go for I'm, it. I'm actually bringing this up selfishly because maybe somebody in the comments will suggest something to me and I can you know, find a better workflow. <laughs> so, or Paul will suggest something to me and find a better workflow. So here it is. Um, uh, typically on the TV show, when we are first um, starting out with a score. I'll get full mixes from the composers. And as we get more involved and we go through rounds of revisions with the directors and producers are trying to figure out what we need, I'll eventually get splits. And then this is actually an interesting thing. I've been, for a decade now, I've been obsessing in the industry because there's a confusion between stems and splits. And at least the way that we look at it, stems are you know all music, all dialogue, all sound effects. And sometimes music stems can be like all percussion, all strings, right? But splits are where things are split out as, as much as possible, right? So for instance, you have every percussion instrument. You know, I've got my triangle, I've got a bass drum, I've got a snare, they're all on separate tracks, if possible, right? Um, and so that's what I think of as, as splits. So um, from the beginning of uh, one episode of a television show until it's delivered to the stage for the re-recording mixer, we end up with a pretty complex multi-track of, um, of how the cues were edited and reshaped to fit, fit the picture. And then we have to go on to the next, um, the next episode. But I have, as a, as a music librarian, I have to be able to go back to those splits that were used for an entire episode. And the way that I've figured it out, and I haven't found a better way, and I've been doing this for years, is to um, put them on these huge stacks of buried playlists and Pro Tools. And so I have a music library which right now I have one session has over a hundred playlists, one playlist for every episode. So I can go back and see all the, see and hear all the edited cues from every previous episode. The reason this is a problem is because um, the Pro Tools session is huge. It's it's accessing hundreds of gigabytes of, of media. Um, and I keep, every time I look at it, I think there must be a better way. And I even talked to um, the team at SoundMiner about, you know, they understood my problem um, from a from a technical perspective, and they were very polite about it and very creative, but they didn't offer me anything that was really going to help. So <clears throat> that's my ungainly my ungainly master Pro Tools session is my big problem, Mike. Um, I it's funny. Um, I'm working with some ungainly Pro Tools sessions, and it drives me crazy. Um, but uh, to to solve that problem for myself, like what I've what I've done, because I have to access. Not only not like I'm, I've had the problem that you're describing with uh, television shows because or um, you know then I but also when I'm temping I have a six terabyte drive of you know of every score ever written uh, not written not literally but it feels that way right and um so you know I, I I'm having all of that in one Pro Tools session 
kind of makes me want to kill myself. So I, 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 I use the Finder and use a program called Audio Finder, um, but which allows you to preview any track that you select and listen back. And there's a lot of features in it that I don't use, but I just use it as a previewing tool. And it's, 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 it's really simple. And, um, you know, part of it, part of the organization of any, of any tracks is our brains. Um, you know, like I, I use, I use my hefty score knowledge over a lifetime, but then also if you're just kind of exploring randomly, it's, it's, it, it's also makes it feasible. So that's my solution. I don't, um, I don't preview in pro tools. I preview outside of pro tools. And then when I find what I'm looking for, find something that might work, I'll drag it in. I mean, sometimes I'll do a, you know, you know, press play here, press play there and see, you know, see how it plays just as a preview. But. Oh yeah. Um, well, I use, I use sound Miner all the time. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I, that's a, yeah. that's a program I actually haven't used. Oh, sound Miner um, for, for managing full mixes of music, right. Sound Miner has been absolutely fantastic. Um, and in fact, I, I wanted them to Yukonize SoundMiner because we all have these big Yukon surfaces. And every time I leave Pro Tools and go to SoundMiner, the, the surface is dead or stuck in Pro Tools. And so I've been wanting them. That's, that's parenthetical. But, um, but SoundMiner is good for that. The problem with SoundMiner is that once you've got something, there's no way to tell SoundMiner, okay, this is the parent file. Here's a full mix. Can you give me all the splits that are associated with that file? Yeah. Right. And that's that's the leap that I want to that's the technological leap that I, I want to make through either metadata or some other format. Yeah. You know, the Pro Tools, um, the Pro Tools export clip group is similar to that. It's like a mini Pro Tools session, but even that is kind of um, a bit of a headache. Um, you know, I was one of the um people who pushed Soundminer to do more with the playlist function because I always find music editing is, is fundamentally different than sound effects editing because you're not searching for something as much as you are listening to things in groups, you know. Um, so, but yeah, it's very, it's a tricky thing. Um, yeah, I mean, the only thing that was going through my mind is, is metadata and tagging, tagging it with tagging stuff with, you know, keywords. So like you would, when you're doing an image library, you know, you might say tree, you know, the pictures of trees with the sunlight, you might say trees, sun, and, and therefore trying to give sort of keywords so that. Yeah, if you're looking for a very basic idea of of a love scene, then you've got you've got loves. Yeah, you could use that as a keyword and therefore enable you to say, well, okay, what have I got in this category? What have I got in in um, suspense? Or I mean, again, I'm using very broad. No, actually, you're you're touching on something. That's that's exactly what we do. We we have an internal list at Rumba of of keywords and playlists to help us kind of navigate that. And we probably have, you know, 70 or 80 kind of playlists set up to say, okay, here are, you know, here's chase music of a certain tempo and mood, boom. And here are subsections of different kinds of chase music that we've written in the past that we can reach to, you know. Um, I know the, pro- the problem with that ends up being, you know, for instance, on I remember back on Fringe, you know, if you're scoring from commercial break to commercial break, you know, one complete act of music, it's going to go through so many different modes, action, emotion, uh, suspense, whatever, that the descriptors become useless because you're, you have, you have like a, a, a seven or 10 minute cue that goes through every imaginable, uh, you know, thing. So then the, the, the tag words yeah. become less, I don't know. Then I just, I mean, at that point, I'm just looking at the waveforms you know, yeah. uh, uh, to, <laughs> as a preview, I'm like, I need something rhythmic and, and, and then, you know, like you look at the waveform and then you listen, uh, yeah. um, 
because the tags mean nothing, you know? Uh, it's just, it's an age-old problem with, with trying to categorize music. And then what means, uh, you know, romance to me may be slightly different to Nathaniel. <laughs> so it's, you know, like, yeah. like, like even when you get into those descriptors, it, it gets, it gets difficult for me. So I actually steer away from them. I don't do, I just rely on my brain and, um, an openness to new shit because, uh, oh, can I say that? Uh, but, um, yep. um but, uh, and, and just, you know, and constantly be listening to new stuff. Um, because I, I find the tags don't help me at all. It's a, um, it, it's different in television a little bit, but I, fo- I found it to be the same problem when I was working in TV too. Or what, and it's, I just worked on a TV show actually last year, so I, I still do TV. But um, hmm. uh, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. Like it's, it's one of those problems. People always ask me, how do you categorize? And I'm like, oh, well, I just have my, my uh, you know, your memory. My memory, which is becoming yeah. more and more problematic the older I get and the more I drink. Um, yeah. But I could well imagine I, 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 the, the, the scenario of being able to hear a particular segment or particular and trying to work out which one of these N thousand projects have I worked on was that particular theme, that particular style, where which project was it in? Um, I mean, I certainly get it. I mean, it's a slight, obviously it's different, but the sound effects, I know the sound effect. I can hear it in my head. I've used it before, but I'm trying to, I'm hunting through using keywords. No, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. And sometimes it's because the keyword was no use in honor because it actually had a completely different descriptor. Yeah. And yeah, it takes me ages to find it. So I can, yeah, the challenge of, of that of the of the memory working for you well you know that, that reminds me mike actually we have a lot of um junior editors and, and interns at the studio and i'm always i'm always reminding them to be constantly updating their own metadata so if you've got if you have your own sound effects library or if you're building one of these big music libraries is that it's okay go in there you don't have to use all the stuff that came you know if you bought a music if you bought a sound effects library and it came with a lot of data and metadata in it you should be constantly updating that in relationship to how you work and flagging things that you like with descriptors that yeah. you're going to remember, yeah. you know. So I, I feel like it's constantly evolving um, process. And, and some of our bigger music libraries, uh, as I search through them, I'll stop and say, "Hey, I need to tag this because I missed something here that was really beautiful that was written a year ago that I forgot about," you know, and go back and and tag it. Um, so. Uh, picking up from differences between music editing for film and TV, I guess one of the things that you, you, you've just alluded to is this sense that a TV cue could have a whole range of different emotions. So rather than you know a cue per scene, perhaps that one might have in a in a film tv because the the whole thing is you know episodic and you've got to tell a story in much quicker time a particular scene or segment could have a raft of different emotions and therefore the cue as we've just described has a lot of different styles within it that that can happen in that happens in film too uh depending on the cue you know um uh especially the later in in a big action movie or a big you know the set pieces at the end you you know you're scoring through a whole number of things <laughs> um it it's it, it's a common problem both it's i don't think it's i don't think it's just a television just, problem just television yeah, yeah. yeah. so what are what 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 are the the key 
differences between film and TV. Obviously, the pace of working by the sound. Yeah, of it. that's the big thing. It's the ta- it's the it's the pace. It's the time. You know, like you're up against a gun, right, Nathaniel? I mean, it's 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 always go 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 go. Um, yeah, and not to sound like we're we're bragging about hard work or anything, but you know, right now I'm on a TV series, and um, I think we have four or five half hour episodes kind of on deck right now. Right. Yeah, that's a lot. So there's like one or two that are close to completion. They got a few more notes. There's at the end of the pipeline. At the beginning of the pipeline, I've got two you know, that I'm a, I've just assigned cues to. So I've got composers writing original music for them right now, and they're going to give me the cues, and I have to do a lot of editing. So it's kind of this continuous pipeline. Um, you know, we we address this by you know shrink, shrinking or enlarging our workforce so that we can take on a lot if we need to. So we can actually move quite quickly because I know I can tap editors to help me out and, and move faster if we need to. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, it's, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's a marathon, you know? <laughs> it certainly is. Um, yeah, I feel like film, f- film, the, it, we have a little bit more breathing room. Uh, I mean, there's still moments where it's go, 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 uh, especially towards the end. Um, but there's more time, especially in mid-level and higher budget movies. Indie projects enter the w- world of, you know, um, insanity uh, because you. But um, but I think that the the time is the big difference between the two. I find that I do the same thing. Uh, I, I approach every project the same, no matter what the budget is, or if it's TV or film, um, and my workflow is pretty similar across everything. I mean, it, when you're dealing with like the TV show I worked on last year, uh, it ended up being eight episodes and they, you know, they were trying to do an eight hour movie basically just in episode yeah. episodes. So it's, it's right. not that different. It, um, the only difference is it's longer, <laughs> you know, you're trying, <laughs> you're trying to, you're trying to, uh, you know, there was four and a half, hours of music to record at a session in a week instead of two hours of music. Um, uh, it was, so, um, so, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Nathaniel, but I feel like that's the big, I don't know, like, I approach every project the same uh, I, in terms of the way I think about it. Oh, yeah. No, I don't think about them differently. I think I think the biggest difference... And also, we're spanning music editing from advertising and television and film. I think that I think the biggest difference is that in television, there's an expectation that you are you're going to be developing themes for the show. So you're you're coming back. You're always you're going to come back to mm. stuff. You're always going to do yeah. that. And I, I think I always imagine, or at least the film scores that I, I know and love. You know, I, I hear that the composer actually had time to develop a theme, and he wrote something original in Act Two. <laughs> You know, he didn't just copy and paste the Act 1 cue into Act 2. The Production Expert Podcast is made possible using Source Connect Now from Source Elements, the free way to record high-quality audio over the internet. Need to record an interview or a podcast like this one remotely? With Source Connect Now, you can. Using a Chrome browser, you'll get ISDN-equivalent quality audio without the need to install any additional software. Register for your free account at now.source-elements.com. So, uh, talking about music editing, for those of us that are, are sometimes, ha- you know, perhaps this is not our full time job, but we we end up with a very tricky music edit to do for one reason or another, and the project doesn't have a music editor that we can ship it off to. 
Can you give us some insights in how you resolve tricky edits? Because obviously music, we've got a, a meter to work to, we've got a tempo to work to, so we can't necessarily take, um, you know, 10 milliseconds out of it. It, it that doesn't, It's not going to work that. And obviously hit points and so on and so forth, you've got real challenges if, especially I guess when you come to, yeah, to the the lack of picture lock and suddenly a tightening up pass appears and you, I'm fairly sure that nobody ever cuts a chunk out of the movie which is the exact number of bars that makes the edit music edit easy so depends on the editor <laughs> I actually have done that Mike but it's the rare project I did that just recently on a project um, you know where I said you know eight eight seconds and two frames is going to be exactly this number of beats for me so please do that yeah, yeah that happens rare. occasionally yeah it's it is rare. rare it is yeah. rare i'd like i i try to uh, limit my my requ my requests of that kind to one a project i i really want to try to solve it i want i want to get i want them to give me the picture and solve it every time um and then and save that you know it's like an ace up your sleeve asking the editor to help you out uh yeah. You know, like so. So what? So without giving all the trade secrets away, give us some. Can you give us some hints on sort of things that you can you do to make this difficult edit work? Yeah, that or, because the timing it doesn't fit musically. Sure. Uh, well, um, it's not that they're trade secrets. I'll I'll tell anything, any anything. But I, it's the funny thing about music. You know, every edit, every tricky edit is its own thing. Every every hmm. every problem has its has a new. Th you know, has a new angle. But one thing, I mean, you know, I know music editors who pride themselves on not using Serato pitch and time or X form at all. You know, um, I'm not one of those music editors. I believe that there are tools for us to use. Um, and so one of the, um, one of the tricks that I use with, uh, you know, especially with, you know, where you're, okay, if you've lost what eight, eight milliseconds is what is that what you said or just like, you've lost oh, a couple yeah. frames here and there so yeah but you know you have a hit point at one point and then the rest is just kind of the action following um i find that you can hide uh you can you you can you can hide an x form you know like whether uh which means i would be either speeding up or slowing down, slowing down. the yep. queue if you do it over a lo the, the longest um, possible period, longest yeah. possible period. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, uh, you know, like a a lot of times, like you you know, like you know, I'll get an edit the way I like rhythmically, and I'm oh, I'm so close to hitting this spot, but I don't. Like sometimes, you know, like you even have you know crossfades in the edit because you've edited it to get to that point. Yeah, I'll save that edit and put it on a different track, and then I'll um, consolidate it. And then you can, uh, so then that edit is hidden in the consolidation, and then you can X-form yeah. the consolidation so that it will uh, hit the point that you want. And um, that trick has helped me, you know, it <laughs> helps me all the time. Um, uh, so for the in terms stuff. of... Well, I, I yeah. am one of those editors that never uses Pitch and Time, so... <laughs> Ah, see, there we go. He's a, would, Nathaniel's a purist. Well, I tell you know. my assistants, don't do that, unless you absolutely have to. Actually, I, I end up using pitch and time if I have to change, uh, you know, a note down a half step or something. But um, Mike, you were saying, yeah, well, it was really just uh, talking about these these tip tools. You, you talked, Paul, both about X form and pitch and time. Do you have a preference, or do you, as I sometimes find with audio restoration tools? that one tool will work on one cue 
and a different tool is actually better for a different queue? Uh, yes. Um, well, it's funny. I used to just solely be pitching time, but um, I've discovered that even though Xform, t- the problem with Xform is it takes forever. It's really <laughs> slow. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> but the results are better uh, on certain things. Um, and so, like, I, on this, on, on the Batman, there was a suite. And we, we ended up recording it. But for the, te- for the temp, my, uh, Michael Giacchino wanted me to, he was like, just take this part and slow it down as much as you can. And I was like, well, I don't know how much we can do that. Um, and so I, I experimented with X-Form. But I literally set, because this is where I had a bunch of, you know, music stems. All in that case, five one. Now we're mixing in seven one, but those are five one stems, and there's a lot of them. I can't even remember how many. I I, I knew how long I wanted it to be. I set the X form, and I, I I started it like at six p.m. on Friday, and it was still going the next day at like you know wow. three p.m. Like I, oh I like it, it was a twenty four hour render. Um, but you know, like it, it ended up sounding good enough. Like it sounded like a halfway decent mock-up, you know, so that, so that it, but we were able to use it as temp for, you know, the duration of the temp process. Um, um, and I guess in a pinch we could use it as the final. I don't think, you know, a lay person is not going to really hear a difference. They're not, um, only, only people with ears like Nathaniel or, um, you know, call it, or my <laughs> other colleagues would, would be able to tell. Um, yeah. But, you know, one with of the, pitch, one of the, oh, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead, Paul. Well, I was just going to say Serato Pitching Time is a lot faster um, and it allows you to do certain things that Xform, I don't think Xform lets you do, whereas you can do ramps in, in Pitching Time. So you can have like yeah. it's, you can have it start speeding up, it start, you know, and, 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 and put in an accelerando in the music that wasn't there before, a retardando in the music that wasn't there before. And, um, my uh, Mike, the Michael Giacchino is not afraid to use these tools. He's the some uh, I, I'm I'm using them sometimes at his behest. You know, like uh, uh, when he like after we've recorded, he's like, "Oh man, I really wish we'd had put a retardando at the end. Can you make that happen?" And then we do, and that ends up being on the yeah. you know on the album. No one, no yep. one the wiser. Um, uh, so um, he's I, I'm I guess I'm. I mean, you know, if you're working on more classical bass, like I, I can't imagine pitch and timing John Luther Adams, you know, like that would just be stupid. You know, you're like, well, that's a... So, <laughs> so. I, um, I, I don't want to reveal all the skeletons we have buried in the closet. Um, but um, <laughs> but no, but to, to come back to Paul, I, I, you know, I look at pitch and time as my kind of last resort if I, if I really can't work something out. But I, I'm, I've become very, very expert at finding places in the music where I can hide a tempo change or... A place in the music where I can go for a bar of six or something like this and still have it feel really good and say, here's, you know, even though we've got a bar of six and that might be surprising to you if you sat there and tapped your, you know, and, you know, yeah. snap your fingers to it, it's still going to be a satisfying cue in the end. So I'm all about, you know, finding those, those places that I can do an edit or a crossfade to change the tempo map a little bit, to stretch and shrink the tempo map a little bit without having to actually go in and sort of damage the audio on the way out, you know. Um, I will say there's something interesting that happened to me a number of years ago. I was working with a, a famous producer, um, and he would we would routinely take you know a huge stack of um, of splits, you know many many different instruments. I mean you know thirty tracks or something like this, and and use pitch and time. And I I realized this is probably about ten years ago. I realized that um, pitch and time makes the assumption that you need to cr- maintain phase accuracy across all those tracks. So if you do it in one shot. 
it's actually lower quality. Um, if yeah. things were recorded isolated and they weren't in the same room and they were like, you know, isolated overdubs that were recorded separately, yeah. you do them one at a time and the, the pigeon time doesn't maintain phase accuracy and you get much higher quality output. You know? Oh, that's very interesting. I, I, yeah, as long as, if everything was recorded in the same room <laughs> and there's bleed between microphones, yeah. you can't do that. Because, so you can't do yeah, that. Yeah. yeah, but if you do, if you have, if it's isolated, then do not group them. Do them one at a time and you'll be surprised, you know, kind of with the huge increase in quality for something that I hate doing, you know. Is X-Form so. X the same? Does it? You know, I would assume it is. I, because yeah, X-Form is so slow, even on modern computers, I've just <laughs> kind of given up on on. Doing it, you know, except occasionally when I use Elastic Audio, I'll use the X form mode, but I basically avoid that altogether and just use pitch and time if I really have to. But I, I think, see. unlike Paul, I'm probably using pitch and time more to say, oh, this this cue, the very last note in this cue, I need that to resolve, or I need the oboes to start a half step down for this entire opening phrase, you know, to satisfy what's happening in a different key. So I'll, I'll occasionally do that with pitch and time, uh, uh, just to. So you're using it for pitch variation rather than necessarily yeah, time. Yeah, this is the absolute. Variation. This is the absolute last resort. But you know, with music editing, often because I've got a whole scene that I'm basically editing myself, if there's a really egregious key change, you know, the entire orchestra is ending in F sharp, and I've got something coming in that's just way out of the key, then I, yeah. I have to say, is it really going to help me? Maybe that cue is short, and it won't be too damaging to the audio to take it down a whole step. Right. Yeah. And say, great. Okay. This sounds fine. You know, I, I, I use so. it for that method. I use it a lot for that too. Yeah. Um, especially when you're recomposing, uh, when you're redoing, you know, when you're making <laughs> new cues from yeah. all of the elements that you have, uh, or especially in temping, um, where you're trying to score a whole set piece, um, and you're using, you know, elements from 15 different scores in the matter of two minutes. Um, you want all of those things to work seamlessly. Uh, pitch and time again is your friend. Um, yeah, I find that uh, for pitching, you have about a minor third on either side that you can yeah, get away with. Yeah, after that, it's a disaster. And yeah. sometimes it's even a disaster uh, depending on what you're pitching. You know, um, mm. you know, even less than that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'll, on temp jobs, I'll really push the limits sometimes, depending, um, because I, my philosophy is no one's ever going to hear this except for the executives, and if it works, hmm. uh, if it, if it, if if it, um, a guy, one of the, a mixer that I've worked with, he's always he always says if it sounds good, it is good, um, and so I've kind of used that as my mantra when I'm questioning whether what I'm doing is sane or not. Yeah. Um, um, and then, you know, sometimes, sometimes I'll just pull out contact and do this, you know, grab, if I need, if I need a string sustain, you know, I'll pull out the cine samples and play a string sustain that will bridge something like, you know, oh, yeah. like, yeah. um, it's, a, it's, that's, I used to not do that as much. Cause I was like, that's not music editing, that's composing. But now I've, 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 <laughs> I've let, I've let up on that a little bit because sometimes you just want to find a yeah, string sustain yeah I, just, I have just a bridges. huge little sub library of things that are going to be really useful to me percussion you know yes. and tune percussion and things like this that are like you know what i need this it's going to make this cue sound great it should be the composer's job but you know i've got to send a new yeah. version of this in an hour you know so. exactly yes yeah that's yeah. absolutely you know and the other thing mike a really obvious thing i'm and also i'm just thinking of our listeners here on the podcast um is understanding kind of when and how to use reverb throws I think oh, if there's yeah. one 
actually, there's two cliches. There are two giant cliches in music editing we have to touch on. The first one is the uh, the rolled symbol, right? That's the uh, the, the symbol roll is the is the ultimate <laughs> way to bridge between two cues that that everybody abuses. Even major composers abuse this, and I'm amazed. If you're writing originally, you shouldn't be doing that. Um, and then the second one is less of a cliche, and it's just a better technique, which is um, I often find it much harder to get out of a cue than it was to get into a cue. Yeah. And so when I'm working on a scene, I have to figure out, you know, I've, I've got to get out of this cue at a certain point in time, and it might be earlier than was originally written, or I've got multiple versions of this. And just being able to quickly, you know, sort of flip faders and send certain tracks to a reverb throw so you get a natural... Um, yeah, decay. You get a natural yeah. decay, or depending on the genre of music, whether it's a plate or yeah. a delay or something like that. Yeah. So you know, all my all my music editing templates, I have, you know, aux um, returns, you know, down yeah. on the right hand side of the session where I've got all these things sort of pre-programmed. So if I need it fast, I say, oh, I've got I've got a delay out on this cue. You know, that yeah. guitar has got a delay out. I've got a send. I can do that. I can do it fast and, and have it be done. Yeah. You know. Uh, no. Yeah. Um. I. It's funny because. I, this goes back onto the hats. Like I always think, okay, I'm a music editor. I'm not a mixer. So I'll actually render the reverb uh, when I'm doing Never. that. Yeah, Never. Uh, yes. Always. Every time. <laughs> Why? Why? Uh, because I, uh, because I, I, I want it to be an element. I don't want it to be, uh, uh, I, and, and I find I, depending on, depending on, um, depending on the out, different reverbs work in different situations, you know? Oh, yeah. so, well, I guess what so. I'm saying is when I send it to the stage, when I send my tracks to the stage, I want all that stuff rendered. Uh, right. But when I'm working, I want it on yeah. the fly so I can keep adjusting it. Oh, fair um, enough. I, I yeah. guess my, yeah, like, yeah. the reason I render it up, like, the reason I render it is I've settled on it and I'm moving on and, and I, I don't yeah. want to think about it yeah. anymore. And when you're running conforms constantly... Um, I don't want to worry about conforming. I hate conforming automation, um, but I don't. I hate. I hate chasing it. So I just keep automation out of the, out of the game, um, with the philosophy that again, I'm an editor. I'm not a mixer, um, and uh, so I use the edit. I, I I really lean into the elements as an editor instead of instead of the automation. Um, yeah, I actually I do conform automation, but I know what you're saying. Uh, no, I mean, I'll do it, and I've 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 done it a little bit on this current movie. Um, I'll do it if I have to, but I, it's it's I just it drives me crazy, and it, it's mm -hmm. it's one thing that I know I don't need to do. Um, I mean, depending on the depending on the project, but I mean, with the project that I work on now, you know, like um, if I, you know, I'll 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 make a cue. And it's generally balanced to the dialogue, but it's music heavy uh, when I send it on to the um, when I send it on to editorial. But the editor always does his own mix pass. So then the benefit of that is he and he uses automation in the Avid, uh, not clip game. Oh, so he, the next time you do a revision, he slips it in under his automation. Exactly. Right. And so, so you didn't you didn't have to make a new mix. Right. Correct. Yes. Yeah. We're always, we're always kind of like, right. and it's, it, and when the mix is in the Avid that way, it's much better than if it's in, like at the editorial phase, not the mixing phase, right. but, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but it's a lot quicker. And so I, I've worked with editors who just use clip gain to mix their things. And then that's a big hmm. pain in the ass for, uh, usually the assistant editor who has to then match all of the clip gain, <laughs> you know, regions, um, every time I send a new thing, you know, whereas, uh, for the assistant editor on this project, I just send a new thing. It's usually starts in the exact same spot. 
there might be some different material if they had a note, but most of the time the, 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 um, automation in the Avid will, you can just copy paste it and bam, they're off yeah. and they, they don't have to think about it again until the music's changed or until the cuts change so drastically, they have to do another mix. Yeah. Um, I mean, on this movie, the, we don't have temp mixes on this movie because the, the editor is so good at doing the mix in the Avid. And so, um, Every time we've had an audience screening or an executive screening, it's just the avid output. It's crazy. Really? Wow. Yeah, it's I, I, th that's unusual. I, I have to be honest. Like that, that doesn't. But the Bill Hoy is such a genius with this stuff. Um, they're able to make it sound and then and then uh, the way they want to. I mean, you know, it's it's not gonna. There are gonna be bumps and rough edges. You know, obviously from an avid output. But in terms of getting the immediate feedback you need from an audience. It it works fine. Um, That's amazing. I knew that I knew that media composer had better audio, um, you know, functionality in the last few versions. It, but I'm surprised it has. Yeah, yeah. improved. I don't think it's. I don't think it's usual. You know, like I, I don't think. Yeah, I, I think unusual. it's like that. The only he's the only editor that I've worked this way. But it. I think the director likes doing it that way because then they don't have. They can literally work work up to the last minute before every screening. Um, yeah. And um, and. And so he he likes it that way. He trusts the editor and the editor has, you know, the mix sounds remarkable. You know, not to say, you know, like the sound editors are working and they're, they're feeding their own, you know, 5.1 or 7.1. Um, I can't remember. I think it's probably 5.1. But, you know, 5.1 sound effects, you know, tracks that then Bill will mix. So it's not like he's doing all of the mixing. You know, there's been pre-dubs, you know, so to speak, yeah. coming at it, coming his way. Uh, but it's it's... As a workflow in the Avid, it's great. And then it means that every time, as long as I deliver, every single time I deliver a music cue, it's the same, you know, across the board. I know that it's going to sound the same because I didn't change anything. And, and when I'm dealing with automation points in uh, Pro Tools, I find there's a lot more that can go wrong. Uh, be just because, you know, with the, with the conforming, yeah. you know, like, um, yeah. like yeah. even just one yeah. little thing, you know, and you're like, why is there a, why is there a tick here? I don't understand. And then you realize, why was there mute automation that got drawn here? Like, I don't know. Like, and that, um, you know, half the time it's avid pro tools bugs, but, uh, that are well, you're, driving you're, nuts. you're lucky on your side because I, we're definitely, when we're finishing a television show, there's no way that the stage has time to help us with a screener. So I always feel I get because I'm also you know I, I have another career as a re-recording mixer on on some shows, but I will often get a little bit annoyed because I have to make a screener that everyone's going to watch, and so I just mix it as fast as I can, <laughs> right? <You> know? <laughs> knowing, knowing that it's just a screener, and everyone, and everyone knows that it's not a mix. This is a music presentation, you know? uh, but it does it does in the, in the back of my head I'm thinking wow I'm spending a, a chunk of this day doing a function that is not really in our job description just so I can have an exciting. You know, really what it is, is I am doing everything I can to attract the fewest number of revision notes possible, right? <laughs> so good move. I'm, 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 when I'm doing that, I'm annoyed that I'm doing it, but I'm also thinking if I, if I, if I mix it this way, they're going to like it like that and I won't get notes on this queue, right? And so that's my, <laughs> that's my, my goal, you know, is to reduce the number of pages on the Excel sheet that we get back from, uh, from the director, you know? So. Uh, one last question, because uh, we certainly have been able to talk about one or two things, um, and that is, does how much of your work involves content greater than stereo, so 5171, or even nowadays, I guess, Dolby Atmos? You know, I'll tell you that, and 
Um, I'll start small and then I'll turn it over to Paul. Um, uh, is well, actually it was 2017 that I first started working in any Atmos format at all. And at the studio, a couple years later, 2019, um, I began to think that our first um, requests for Dolby Atmos would be coming from our television clients because I started seeing it on spec sheets. And so I sort of got prepared for Dolby Atmos with TV in mind um, because there was pressure from the top with high-end productions coming from Netflix and HBO. So this is going to be it. And then there was a long period of silence. And then all of our music clients started asking for Atmos, which was a huge um, surprise to me. So my Atmos trip has been sort of inverted. I, I got ready for it, expecting one group of clients, and then I got a whole different group of clients, and I'm quite happy. Um, at this point, for the television shows I work on, uh, we're basically going up to 5.1. Uh, once in a while, I think we have one show coming next year, which is going to be an Atmos show, but it's not clear from a music perspective uh, whether we'll be handling that or whether all of our cues will be delivered to the stage and they'll handle Atmos on, on that side. So, so for yeah. our TV stuff, I would say we're uh, at least for the TV stuff that I, that that Rumba is working on right now, we're definitely in a stereo and 5.1 land. So, uh, yeah, I can second with the TV show I worked on last year. We delivered 5.1, um, uh, but on the Batman, we're working primarily in 7.1 and Atmos. Uh, there is Atmos. Um, the mixer that's on this, his name is Andy Nelson. He's pretty old school, and so like the the scoring mixers delivered um, for for like they look like stereo pairs but they're there's they're designed to be atmos objects to put in the overheads and yeah. mm-hmm. Andy and our mixer may not even use them they're basically there for him if he wants he he doesn't even really do a lot with atmos because he finds that it, if you do too much with atmos it gets distracting from what you're watching so sure. he'll just widen this the image a little bit more he'll he'll with using the atmos objects but other than that, he doesn't like to mess around with it. Um, he's more old school. Like I've dealt with a couple of mixers that get a little more crazy with the Atmos. Um, um, but I do, I do have to say, like if if the if if I'm in a theater and the music is too far off the wall, unless it's source music and you're doing something, you know, spatially that you're wa- with what's on the screen, I think it gets a little distracting. Um, you know, maybe if I'm, maybe if I was like, uh, listening to, I don't have an Atmos setup here, but if, if, but if I got really wonky into listening to classical music and you said, oh, this was mixed in Atmos, then I, maybe I'd get excited because, you know, it's a listening experience designed specifically for Atmos. But I find for film, Atmos for music seems to get on a, it almost distracts from the storytelling aspect of filmmaking. Um, I, I, but that could mean just be being a Luddite. I, I, I haven't figured it out yet. Um, I haven't heard, uh, I haven't heard too much Atmos music in film that I found to be, you know, helpful to the story. Um, I think it's more, it's better when you're kind of, kind of enveloping people in the sound effects or the, you know, if you're going to really give an immersive experience and make the music part of I don't know. Like, what is the music in a movie, anyways? It's not unless it's diegetic. Like, it's you know, it's very arbitrary yeah. that there's this score telling you how to feel. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. well, you know, yeah, I, I'm going to argue with you a little bit, Paul, just because I've been I've been watching movies at home in Atmos, uh-huh. and some of the most exciting soundtracks are where the abstract, um, the abstract shape of the mix of the of the music 
um, does fill into the sides and the overheads a little bit because those are the things that are more abstract. I almost feel like I almost feel like there's an invitation for it versus if you have too many sound effects on the ceiling, it's distracting, right? Right. Um, and, and 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 this actually brings me back to a technical thing too, which we did we didn't touch on earlier, um, and kind of what I need as as a as a music editor and as a music producer. And that often, what I want is I want when a delivery is made is I want reverb returns and delays and hauls to be printed on their own tracks specifically for this reason. So that when you're on the stage, you can actually peel, you can make more space inside of a score by you know pushing those reverb returns somewhere where they might not have been in the stereo five one, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, no, I, mean, I, I think what we're really saying is there are no rules, but I, I've heard some recent scores <laughs> right now that have actually surprised me for having, you know, quite active, music atmos mixes that are pretty impressive you know? well I, so. I i i can imagine that that to be the case and i feel like you know when you're dealing with maybe more subjective scenes um that would be a, a definite amazing tool to use you know if you're going to see a david i'm mean, you know like I, I feel like david lynch would have a really great atmos mix on a, you know something that oh but my God. but if you have a <laughs> if you have a straight ahead if you have a straight ahead scene you know where it's there's not any subjectivity at all and it's just kind of, um, I, I, you know, like I, I remember seeing, I feel like, I feel like, uh, when I saw the last Jedi, not the, wait, is it the last Jedi, the last Jedi in theaters, I found that the music was so spaced out. Like I found it distracting. Um, and, and that's, that's, you know, that was a less, that's not a very subjective movie in, in most cases. It's more kind of just a straight ahead narrative. Um, and I found, I found the, I found the Atmosy part of it a little um, over, over, you know, overdone, you know. Um, so, it, but I take your point, Nathaniel. I mean, I think that there's a lot of possibilities that you could utilize, um, uh, um, you know, to help just with, to give to, to create a bit of space. I, I suspect Paul, that if you and I were sitting in the room together moving faders around, we'd probably agree on the same thing. Even though we're I, talking about two different things, I think we'd both go, oh yeah, that's too much in the overhead. You know? I think, I, <laughs> I think, yeah. I think, I, you, I think we, I think we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't mean to, you know, like I, I, I'm not a, I'm not anti-Atmos. I don't mean to come across as anti-Atmos. I, I, I actually really like Atmos mix, mixes. Um, uh, but, uh, just with the with the music, like it's I, maybe it's because of the people I work with. Andy Nelson's very old school, and so kind of like he's rubbed off on me, you know, uh, in <laughs> in terms of being conservative with the Atmos sauce. Um, uh, but anyways, yeah. uh, these enough. are the days where a lot of bad Atmos mixes are being made. You know, sure, well, I yes, imagine in music, so. Yeah, in in all genres, yeah, in all genres, music, and TV, we're hearing them, absolutely. You know? Yeah. yeah, and I, I've been—I myself have been guilty of making sort of terrible mistakes. But I hope, and most of the circumstances, I've been able to sort of save myself right before it, you know, gets delivered <laughs> to to uh, to an actual outlet for streaming or for you know for sale, you know. So, right, it's uh, a, it's a, yeah. another tool in the arsenal. We can we can say yeah. you know, uh, yeah. um, it just yeah. because it's just because it is a tool that can be used doesn't mean you should be always using it. You know, like, you know. Um, you don't use a hammer to saw a piece of wood, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, for instance, but anyways. Uh, uh, yeah, and I've I've actually delivered things to the stage where I say, hey, you, here are some split music tracks that you may want to put more in the surrounds. 
right? Yeah. Or not, it's up to you, but I'll, I'll split them out and label them in such a way so that the mixer has the flexibility to kind of leave it the way I had it or to break it open a little bit wider and so that yeah. the doors are open for them. Um, and I, that's that's the most critical thing of being a music editor is 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 delivering your work so that if nobody does anything to it, it sounds great. But if somebody does something to it, there's, it's laid out in a way that's clear enough that it can be flexibility, and you can quite easily quickly go in and say, "We're going to change something." You know, we're going to raise the percussion, we're going to lower the brass, and that kind of thing. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Okay, well, uh, we've just got time to finish uh, with our regular feature, Find of the Week. RSPE Audio Solutions design, sell, and install professional audio and video equipment. Their team are available by phone, live chat, or email to receive and process orders. They have everything you need to build or upgrade your home studio to ensure you can continue to work from home. If there is anything they can do to help, Reach out or shop online at rspeaudio.com. So, uh, Nathaniel, what's your find of the week? So I'm going to give you my, my find of the week, and then I'm going to give you my find of the season. And I, I okay. promise to be quick about it because I know we're running out of time. So um, so my find of the week, um, it was a couple of years ago, I ran into Alan Meyerson, who's kind of a hero of mine. I'm, I'm sure Paul yep. is familiar with him. Who are arguably one of the greatest, you know, scoring mixers of our time. And um, I had a couple minutes with him, just chatting with him. And I, I said, hey, you know, we really got to hear. I really want to be able to hear your work uh, in higher formats, you know, and sort of five point one and things like this. And he sort of nodded and said, yeah, yeah, I wish we could do that. And I was so pleased to find out that the Dune soundtrack is available for streaming in Atmos. So wow. that's my find of the week. And not everybody has Atmos. <laughs> I get that, but it's absolutely incredible and i was listening to it last night thinking about the podcast today um and uh, you know it's 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 incredibly beautiful and i think it's a great usage of atmos um uh, and it's interesting actually to compare what they were doing in the film versus what's actually on the on the album and okay. in one way the album is kind of a more special experience then um my my find of the season and this is for our our technical audience um is my new favorite plugin of the season is called Multiplicity from DMG Audio. And, okay, uh, and what does that do? Well, I've been I've been on a on a quest that's been going on for months and months and months to find um, uh, a better deesser. Um, right. But also, as part of that, is getting better uh, multiband compression, and also dealing with certain tasks that would require a dynamic EQ, but having sort of more precision involved in that. And and multiplicity has kind of like solved all those problems for me. You know, my my uh, my previous my previous favorite deesser was the Weiss, but it's so buggy that I've just had to completely stop using it. And mm. uh, and and multiplicity has kind of uh, stepped in right filled now. Filled a hole. It's filled a hole. It's a very <laughs> complex plugin, but it's it's um as I get better at using it, I realize all these things, all these projects that I've been been working on that I should have had it available to me because I wasn't thinking I could that it could be achieved in audio. I didn't think there was a plugin that could do that, hmm. right? So now I'm, I'm, I'm sort of challenging myself and hearing things that I would like to adjust that I didn't think were possible to adjust before, and multiplicity is kind of getting me there. So, you know. Paul, yeah. what's your finder this week? Uh, well, um, I was amazed uh, to discover. I mean, all the technically minded people out out there probably are like, "Well, yeah, this has been around for a while," but. Um, we no, have, the, the, one of the rules with Find of the Week is it doesn't have to be something that came out last week. Uh, it's something that you've come across. It, it, so was, X-form. it was X-Form. It was X-Form. 
Okay. <laughs> no. Uh, um, there's this, have you heard of Chameleon? Um, there's a, it's this, um, it's basically a, a tool that allows you to imitate any reverb that you're trying to match. Um, and uh, oh yes, you you, uh, you can you can play it something and it and it, it then yeah. produces and that. Yeah, the prob- the reason it came up was there was a there's a scene where they're using um like they were using audio that they recorded on set, right? But it sounds really yeah. you know, the the treatment of it sounds good because you know, because it was because the set was the set was good. But it has a piece of music that we can't use, so we have to replace that music and we have to replace you know, they have to make sure that the news program is playing in that space. And yeah. the sound designer was like, hey, I think this this uh, this plugin will work. Um, it's called Chameleon. And he played the original uh, <laughs> and then the imitated one. And they, I, I couldn't believe how close it was. Like it was, it's, it's wow. remarkable. So uh, it's called Chameleon. And I was, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed that they were able to do that. So, um, and you're using that for a source music. So you're using that to try to play something in a in a, in a space. In a yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and and to be able to match the verb that the you know that the creatives the, are all yeah. used to, like they have temp, you know, that you yeah. can have tempitis with the way something sounds, not just the cue. <laughs> so now we want, that's one less thing we have to worry about because we're able to replicate it so easily. Uh, it makes I think that it makes its own. IR, you know, that then you can load into mm. whatever, like Altiverb or whatever. Um, um, and uh, I'm well, I spend so long with Altiverb and speakerphone trying to do exactly what you're talking about. That sounds great. Yeah, yeah, it's a yes. uh, absolutely. It, it was it um, it it shows much promise um, just based on the the small experience I had with it this past week. So uh, um, check it out. Check it out. Great. Thanks, Paul. Well, my finder this week. Um, is going to replace what sat in front of me, uh, as in my MacBook Pro, which is um, a 2012 MacBook Pro. I have just uh, laid out for one of the new uh, M1 Max 16-inch uh, MacBook Pro. So um, that is my find of the week. And certainly based on uh, some of the uh, performance that we're starting to hear. So for instance, Russ took the Pro Tools demo session, which comes when you, which you can download when you install Pro Tools. So he took the music session, which is about sort of 50, 60 tracks. And then he duplicated that so that there was something in the order of six, 700 tracks and still was able to play that with all the plugins that were in use and not the fan doesn't even start running anybody who's used a laptop and trying to use it in a in a space that you're also recording knows that the laptop fan can be a pain in the rear end and no fan and fan not triggered so i am looking forward to my brand new macbook pro coming so yeah that's my find of this week and uh, yeah, I'm afraid we have gone on longer than we would normally do. But hey, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests, Paul and Nathaniel, for lifting the lid on what music editors do in film and TV productions. And we'll be back next week with another edition of the Production Expert Podcast. Production Expert Podcast.